0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Professor of Strategy and the War Room Podcast Editor here at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program. So at the end of each year, Time magazine uh, famously identifies a, quote, person of the year. And this is a designation that signals uh, the political zeitgeist of the year, uh, maybe the concerns of a global public, and it's understood by many to signal political, social, and cultural values as well. At the end of 2018, Time designated the guardians as the person of the year. Uh, that is, journalists who had been targeted for their work. And they released four covers highlighting some of the most notable cases. Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post contributor who was killed at a Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul in October of 2018, uh, two Reuters reporters imprisoned in Myanmar, uh, Maria Ressa, who is facing charges in the Philippines, and the journalist from the Capital Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, whose, whose newsroom was shot up by a gunman. Uh, so those are extreme examples of assaults on the press, and those have been on the rise. Uh, but there are also softer tactics at work. And the relationship between media and government is an important one, both for domestic and international politics. But it's also a very complex relationship. So I've asked Dr. Amanda Cronkite to join me today on A Better Piece. Amanda holds a PhD in political science from the University of Illinois, and is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of National Security and Strategy, here at the War College, she'll be teaching an elective course this spring on media and national security, and is a resident expert on the topic. So, welcome to the War Room, Amanda. Good morning. Nice to be here. Great. Uh, so, I think a lot of people uh, imagine that a free and think that a free and independent media is a hallmark of democracy and a benchmark of freedom. Uh, it serves as a check between government power and abuses uh, by powerful people. Uh, can you help us understand why we have that? link so clearly ingrained in
1: us? So the classic liberal idea of freedom of the press really is about the the role of the watchdog. So the fourth estate was first coined by uh, Sir Edmund Burke. The idea is, if no one is watching the government, that there is no check on power. So the press has been called the fourth estate, the fourth branch. <sighs> the watchers, the watchdog. And that idea in the past century has spread quite widely across the world, even to places where there is not necessarily freedom of the press. The relationship is complex because journalists and politicians depend on each other. Most people will never have a substantive policy discussion with anyone in government. And most politicians will never really be able to speak to all of their constituents so this relationship of the press being the watchdog of government but really government still holds a lot of the control mm-hmm.
0: cuz they're the they're a watchdog but they're also the way that governments like you said can communicate uh, many things things government officials just aren't speaking in official terms they're speaking to the press they're holding press conferences uh, issuing press releases and so on and so forth, um, so the government has then a vested interest in how news is covered as as well. Uh, so what um, what what can happen when these interests sort of start to collide?
1: So most people, not just governments, don't like negative information about themselves being out there, but news, by its very nature, is it, when news is being a watchdog, it's not going to be talking about necessarily positive things. It's going to be talking about scandal. It's going to be talking about embezzlement. It's going to be talking about tough topics. And so there are a number of things that governments across the world, democracies and autocracies do to coerce or compel or coerce positive coverage and to disincentivize negative coverage. Mm-hmm. Some of this is very obvious, so in some countries, for example, the, there's a very kind of revolving door between the press and government. People will be journalists, and then they will be politicians, and then they will go back to being journalists. Um, some countries have rules or unofficial norms against that, like we don't allow it in the U.S. Uh, with financial people and the, um, the SEC. We expect right. there to be more of a difference. So that's one way. The other thing we see a lot, for example, is with any monopoly, if there's oligarchic control of media, as with any other industry, any other con- anything where you have concentrated ownership, that tends to disincentivize disrupting the status quo. Because people tend to want to just keep their, con- the owners of media want to keep control. And that in some ways, means keeping a steady relationship with government. Okay, and that would have that would
0: play whether even in in places that the the media is not state owned. Yeah. Uh, it's owned privately, but um, powerful people want to
1: maintain, like you said, stability. Yes, the uh, Sylvia Wiseboard, who's a scholar at George Washington University, he studies Latin American media a lot, and he talks about a lot of places the media is stuck between and this is his phrase the rock of the state and the hard place of the market so they have to stay afloat so and they they their businesses they have to run so the more concentrated ownership you get the more you tend to see people just wanting things to stay as they are which doesn't necessarily mean that the government doesn't get covered and it doesn't mean it doesn't that the media doesn't cover difficult topics. It's just a disincentive to rock the boat. Okay. When you talk about the market, um, that
0: seems like an interesting question too, because I think for Americans, we think the news is negative because that's what sells, right? So it's about scandal and catastrophe and all sorts of terrible things. Uh, Does that come into play in this in this question as well? Well, frankly, um,
1: what <laughs> news doesn't sell. Um, there's quite a bit of research that shows, to give an example, if uh, going back to the '80s when cable TV was kind of introduced mm-hmm. and people didn't have to watch the six o'clock news, you are more likely to watch a rerun of a sitcom you hate than to seek out news unless you are what people in political science would call a news seeker. Most people are news avoiders, and that makes sense. After a long day, none of us really want to hear about bad things. Even people who seek out the news, particularly local news, the most popular topics are traffic and weather and mm-hmm. local sports. Which makes sense. You you know, if you if you've got a kid playing playing high school football, you want to see the coverage of that on Saturday or on Friday night. If you're driving somewhere, you want to know how the weather's going to be and you're interested in crime in your local neighborhood, but you're not necessarily interested in big topics. And if you're watching local news, there is there is a time constraint. If you can report on a national news story about corruption, or a CDC outbreak, or a big weather problem, at some point, local news broadcasts are still constrained to 22 minutes of airtime. They can put more on their website, but the people who seek out their website probably are already more informed.
0: Okay. So what other um, ways then do governments have sort of at their, at their disposal to like you said, coerce or compel the type of coverage that they're going
1: to find uh, most, most beneficial? Well, despite the examples from Time magazine this year, most governments in the past two decades especially have realized that blatantly censoring or taking on the press is not effective. In some ways, that garners bad coverage itself. It'll create a backlash or a response. Exactly. So what some countries do, um, we saw in Ecuador and in Venezuela, every every news organization that uses public airwaves, for example, is technically licensed, regulated, mm-hmm. same, most countries. Generally renewing those licenses is pro forma. Um, there is some review to make sure that ABC in the U.S. or Australia still is basically a news organization. It hasn't changed from that. Well, in Venezuela and Ecuador and some other countries, um, governments can just not renew those licenses. Now, again, that's seen as a very extreme measure because, in some ways, it's it's too obvious. They can also, in places, for example, but if they raise the price of an import tax on newsprint, well, that's 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 just that's just a tax. The cost. Of, yeah, cost of, the business, cost of doing business. That's just the cost of doing business, and you know. Yes, maybe the newspaper's coverage in the past year has been negative, but doing something like that, cutting, cu- increasing attacks on newsprint, putting a limitation on something that people can bring in is c- considered more effective because it's just the cost of doing business. So there was an article in 2011 after the Arab Spring by Morov Morozov. I apologize. I know I'm butchering his name. But he said... He, He wrote very famously in the Wall Street Journal, smart dictators don't quash the Internet. It's much more effective to slow it down. Mm -hmm. It's much more effective to – you cannot search Tiananmen Square in China. You can't even any longer search May 35th, which used to be the way to search it. Targeted limitations work much better. People think of China as, in some ways, repressing the media, but actually, they allow quite a bit of coverage of local corruption, local and state corruption. The idea is, people get it out of their system. Mm-hmm. They think if that there's coverage, at this smaller level. Yeah, so they're seeing coverage. They're seeing the watchdog role of the press. They're just not necessarily aware that no one's talking about corruption in the central government. Okay, so you can see ways to sort of shape media
0: coverage uh, that are out maybe more subtle than outright uh, hostility or attacks uh, blatantly. So do those types of um, shaping or manipulations happen
1: in both democratic and non-democratic places? Yes, absolutely. And they actually happen by the government and by other organizations. So Mexico um, is considered the most dangerous place in the hemisphere to be a reporter, not because the government censors necessarily, but because the cartels have made it so dangerous that a lot of reporters in the border states have chosen to self-censor. Now, Mexico's government has a very close relationship with the media and always has, at least for the past century. So they've tended, the media there has tended not to cover a lot of negative things about the central government. So in that country, for example, you have the government incentivizing pov- positive coverage because they, they give preferential access to certain reporters. And you have also uh, the, 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 the word that scholars use there is a culture of collusion, that reporters just also know what topics they have to avoid mm-hmm. so that they don't get any kind of punishment or get frozen out. And then with the cartels, a lot of people have been told, it's time for you to stop being a reporter, go write a novel, or we're going to kill you. Okay. So it's done in democracies and non-democracies, and in some cases, even by non-state actors. Okay, I think that's really important.
0: And this idea of self-censoring, too, that reporters are choosing what to cover mm-hmm. as, as well because time is limited, space is limited, resources mm-hmm. are limited. Um, and so the idea that you would... Put yourself or your business model at risk in order to cover something might be um, sort of difficult to to expect. Um, how do we see some of this playing out in within within say the United States in particular?
1: Well, historically in the U.S., for I mean, Kennedy is the example. Everyone knew he was having an affairs, but the cultural t- norm at the time and The idea that was, you know, the Walter Cronkite, Edward R. Murrow broadcast model, they only had 30 minutes to get the news out. So, yes, the president's having affairs, but that's probably less important than the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there you had both a cultural norm of we don't talk about this and a time constraint. In the U.S. now, the biggest thing I see is that people have ceased to recognize the distinction between news and commentary, So commentary is much cheaper. It is much cheaper to put a pundit on TV to give his or her opinion on something than to send a reporter to Syria or to Myanmar or to Africa. And therefore, there's been much more of a shift, particularly on cable news, but also um, in broadcast news, to to this kind of commentary model. Mm -hmm. It's cheaper. Therefore... But I don't think most people think about that. Most people turn on Fox, MSNBC. And they think they're getting news. They think it's news. And it is in the afternoon. But in in prime time, it's not because that's very simply when the cable, they have to make their money, is in prime time. And people are more likely to watch some heated argument than they are to watch an in-depth coverage of the Flint water crisis. Sure. But you're not going to find out about the Flint water crisis if you don't have reporters at the state house level, not national reporters, but actually people talking to city councilmen, people talking to local organizations. That's really where most journalism is done. So when I talk to people, the first question I ask them is, do you pay for a local news subscription? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, then... And you know you get what you pay for. Why would you expect someone to be checking your mayor or your r- local representative to see if... playing that sort of watchdog? Yeah, exactly.
0: Role if they're if they're not um, there. No, I yeah. think that's a I think that's a really interesting um, sort of question. And, and I think people have gotten so used to things being right free on the internet uh, that we can forget that the reporting of news is actually a pretty costly. Endeavor when it's um, when it's done well, and it also helps maintain, I would imagine, independence um, when when those controls are a little bit more external um, to the people who are interested in the in the coverage.
1: Yeah, so there are countries, for example, just in the past year, both Kenya and Bolivia. The newspapers there, and most news, even in the U.S. these days, most actual reporting is still done by newspapers. So in Kenya and in Bolivia in the past year, the government is the biggest buyer of advertising. So one thing they can also do to dry up funds is to shift their government advertising buys from one newspaper Mm. to, to another if newspaper A is giving unfavorable coverage. And Bolivian President Evo Morales tweeted that he was doing that, that he was not going to be working with certain entities in the press anymore because he didn't like their coverage. Well, that's technically a country that says it has freedom of speech. That's a place where people re- expect some level of watchdog reporting. And the government is overtly saying, give me better coverage or I'm going to run you into the ground. Mm-hmm.
0: And we see examples of that. Um, sort of maybe sometimes more subtly, but sometimes not, even in uh, even in a U.S. context right now too, right? With press passes and access, mm-hmm. so even in a place where, where freedom of speech and freedom of the press is enshrined in the Constitution, you still have to be able to get near the candidate or near the president or near the um, the official in order to ask the questions, in order to follow up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do you think are the consequences? of this complex relationship between governments, uh, politicians, and the, the press when it comes to national security issues? Well, I think
1: that we know that the news doesn't tell you what to think. It tells you what to think about. So if there are systematic gaps in what the press, for whatever reason, because it's coerced or because they're self-censoring doesn't cover, people will think about those topics or areas less. So how many of us recently have thought about Flint? How many of us recently have thought about corruption? The only reason it was on my mind was because I saw some news story last week that two nuns were arrested for embezzling money and they went to Vegas to gamble it. Well, I only found that out because there was a reporter who was going through the books or there was a reporter who was at the courthouse looking at recent Mm -hmm. arrest records. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known that. And I think, you know, if I'm giving money to a church or a charity, I generally, I'm okay with it being used to pay salaries and overhead costs, but I'm really not good with nuns gambling with the that the gambling. Money. But I wouldn't have known that if somebody wasn't taking the time to look at those records. Mm-hmm. So Mark Twain, what did he say? It's not what you don't know, it's what you know that ain't so. So here we have this gap of, There's this whole bunch of things we aren't hearing about. You don't necessarily know what you're hearing about. And what you think is true may not be. Were there an investigative reporter looking at it? So if you, how many, I'm certain that people in Flint five years ago, six years ago, believed that the government water was, entity was, had their backs. So if, if we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know, what's not being covered, then we're going to think about things like corruption less, which means you don't notice it until something really goes off a cliff. Yeah.
0: So if we think about this in this sort of national security realm, the same things, there's, you know, almost 200 countries in the world. There's things happening in places all the time. And if you don't have that sort of constant coverage and the, the constant, um, feedback about what's happening. You may not ever hear about something until there's a crisis. You may not ever hear about something until um, things have already sort of gone gone off the rails or things are so bad that it feels maybe irredeemable or unfixable in some way.
1: Well, currently in Myanmar, the, the two reporters from Reuters who are jailed, they were reporting on genocide. And the New York Times has said... The only reason any of us found out about the Rohingya crisis, because no one in the government would talk about it, and none of the adults in the area would talk about it, according to the Times, because they were afraid. So the way the Times found out about the story was they started asking children questions, because kids had no filter. So think about that. There's this massive genocide, and I think we would all agree at this point, genocide is not an inappropriate term, being perpetrated by at some level by government officials there's disagreement about how how high up it goes and everyone is so afraid that they don't want to talk about it well if we say we care about religious prosecution generally mass mass killing genocide is bad we wouldn't know any of that if it weren't for reporters who Risked their who got arrested, who risked themselves to do it for the New York Times and Reuters, who invested the money to send reporters there, which is not cheap. And even then, we're not necessarily doing anything about it because we don't think about Myanmar a lot. But from a national security perspective, if we say we care about genocide, if we probably want to have an idea of where it's happening, because if we don't. And we, it gets too late. I mean, we've seen what happens in Rwanda and other places where it just keeps going. Sure. Um, to close out, what
0: what do you think are the sort of consequences um, at an individual level? We talked about this a little bit. Um, and then what can we as citizens do, um, do you think, to help understand the relationship between governments and media and to maybe... Um, Think about more critically how these relationships operate in practice.
1: Well, I think for people when they're overseas, knowing about this is is helpful. Or so if you're interested, for example, this week it was Poland. Um, if you're interested in that country, know that recently the one of the leaders there has been gifted lots of media entities by other by by business. So there's clearly some kind of close relationship there. And if you're gifting a party member media, I personally wouldn't necessarily expect a lot of criticism from that mm-hmm. media of that party anymore. So for for example, for people living in Poland, for our diplomats there, for military stations in the area, knowing that that relationship exists and may it won't color what you, you get, but it might limit or constrain what you okay. get, I think is really helpful. It's going to sort of draw
0: boundaries around the news coverage that's happening exactly uh, locally. And so it may then lead you to seek external sources uh, to sort of
1: triangulate, I guess, between yeah. what's covered. And sometimes those sources are just the same reporter being working with another company. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a Mexican journalist who was working both for... The Mexican press and the US press as a freelancer and he would submit very similar stories. But the coverage of what he submitted in the US press had a lot more details in it than what, he, what was printed okay. in the Mexican press. So some of it, if you're an informed consumer, is figuring out who is actually on the ground, who's covering this topic. What, who do I trust? And then looking for different outlets covering it. Okay, so that's great advice. So following
0: individual reporters and, and individuals who may have um, stories or coverage in multiple outlets, I think the, the advice to get your news from more than one place <laughs> sounds like um, another sort of solid strategy for sort of figuring out and managing how this information flow happens between governments and the media. Any other, um, tips or techniques
1: that consumers of, of news might use? Subscribe to your local newspaper. Um, a lot, you know, the New York times and the Washington post get lots of coverage and it's great if people are subscribed to those, but if you're really interested in ha- what's pe- going on with your tax dollars and whether or not your kids school water is safe or what's going on with military personnel near where you live, then that's not going to come from a reporter in Washington Mm. or New York. That's going to come from somebody local to you. Yeah. And I think that's a great
0: reminder that the relationship between local and national uh, sort of is is expansive. And so many uh, places around the United States and around the world do have military personnel, do have um, bases and, and things like that. And defense industries are are pretty important uh, aspect of the national security enterprise, but also of local economies. So I think the the advice to pay attention at the local level, the national level, and the international level
1: is, uh, is good advice. And it's not even that you have to pay attention. I consider it the cost of being an informed adult. I keep a local news subscription not because I'm reading the local newspaper every day, but because it means me as one little part of their subscriber base, there's somebody still looking at corruption. Mm-hmm. There's somebody still looking at mismanagement in the VA. There's somebody still looking, and since that newspaper contributes to the Associated Press, the Associated Press is able to pay a and reporter it up. in Kenya or in Indonesia yeah. about other things I might be interested in like terrorism. Right. So I'm I don't actually read the printed newspaper I get, but I keep a you know a digital subscription because I consider it the cost of being a good citizen being an informed citizen it's a part of a larger sort of ecosystem of information yes and citizenship
0: and the obligations thereof Good so thanks for joining us today, Amanda um, on a better piece and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you good day if you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Piece, the War Room Podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.